that as we've walked in with this burden, that we would feel the freedom to just lay it at your feet. That we would come into this worship service of the Lord with a heart just ready um, to learn about our state and to learn about the redemption that we have through you. God, you are the only reason that we have hope today. You are the only reason that we have a future and something to long for. So God, I just pray as we enter into this time, as we open your word, that you would teach us today that our only option is to be fully dependent on you. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, you are an amazing heavenly father. And you deserve all of our praise, all the time, everything that we have. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please take your seat. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ezra. Uh, we've been journeying through Ezra this year, and uh, we're getting close to the end. Two weeks left, this week and next week. And today we're going to be in Ezra chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, I would invite you to keep it open there to Ezra 9, where we're going to be most of the service. And if not, you can follow along as I read the Word of God. This is Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again 
and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord. God, this morning as we come before you and hear you speak to us, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would humble us, that your Holy Spirit would lead us to an openness, Lord, that we would come to trust you more, that we would see ourselves as you see us, Lord, that your word would become a light into our darkness, to open up our eyes to see. Lord, we need you, and we ask this morning that you would be our guide and our teacher. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Typically, when we think of restoration, we think of taking something old or bad and making it better. Uh, You might think of maybe an old car or or an old house, and and restoration is to to bring that thing back into working order, to, um, to make it look renewed, to give it fresh life. But I have titled this sermon, Restored to Brokenness. Restored to Brokenness. See, we've all joined together, and we've created a meritocracy where what it means to win at life is to be the most successful, to be the most put together, to be the most powerful and in control. That that's what it means to, to live in this world. We see it as our aim to move up. But God's scoreboard is so much different from ours. Um, How utterly jolting, for example, to hear in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or to hear David pray in Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or how odd to hear Isaiah describe Jesus, our Savior, this way in Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. We need to be restored to brokenness. Bob Coughlin is a worship leader for Sovereign Grace Music. We sang one of their songs this morning. Um, He wrote a book called Worship Matters, and, and in the early part of that book, he tells a portion of his own story. And there's something that he says in that story that just has stuck with me for years because I see myself so much in what he says. And so I just want to read a portion of it to you. This is Bob sharing his own story. He said, I spent most of my early years seeking my own glory. When God saved me at 17, my sins were completely forgiven, but I had deep-rooted sin patterns that weren't going to die easily. My life was one extended attempt to draw attention to my gifts, my abilities, and my efforts. But it wasn't working. I felt like my life was about to fall apart. And over the next few months, I experienced a variety of symptoms. Hollowness, tightness in my chest, 
buzzing in my face, daily thoughts of death, itching on my arms, panic attacks, sleeplessness, shortness of breath. So I made an appointment for a complete physical with our family doctor who said I was fine. At least that's what the tests showed. But the tests couldn't measure what was taking place in my heart. I was battling God for His glory and losing. About a year after these symptoms appeared, Julie and I attended a leadership conference and shared a meal with our good friends Gary and Betsy Ricucci. Early in our conversation, I confessed, Gary, I don't know what to do. I feel hopeless all the time, completely hopeless. And I expected Gary to say something like, You'll be okay, Bob. God is faithful. He's working all things for your good. But instead, he looked at me with compassion and stated, I don't think you're hopeless enough. If you were really hopeless, you'd stop trusting in yourself and what you can do, and you'd start trusting in what Jesus accomplished for you at the cross. What Gary was saying to Bob is that he needed to be restored to brokenness. That place where we are utterly dependent upon the Lord. That place where we are low before the Lord and soft towards the people around us. When God restores us, we have to be broken. So we're going to be going on a journey this morning in Ezra chapter 9, and, and I confess this is a difficult journey. Um, you are probably like me, and we all naturally just want so bad to move up, and yet the path of Jesus is down. And so we're going to be on this path to godly brokenness from Ezra chapter 9, and the first step along the pathway is an awareness of infidelity, an awareness of infidelity. God had brought Ezra and Israel up out of Babylon, and he'd brought them to Jerusalem. And last week, it ended with what seemed to be a celebration. It ended with what seemed to be a party. But then, verse nine opens up, or chapter 9 opens up this way in verses 1 and 2. I want to read it again. It says, After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials... And chief men has been foremost. So some of the people come to Ezra and they report a problem. The people of Israel have intermarried with people from other nations who worship other gods. And in doing so, they have committed spiritual adultery against God. Now, you might be thinking, is this sort of like some sort of weird racial favoritism? Is that what God cares about here? Is, is what God cares about in this particular story, is it their ethnicity? Is that the problem? But what we see clearly in verse 1 is that that has nothing to do with it. When God tell, or when they, when they actually talk about what the real problem is, it says they have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Abomination is anything that is disgusting to the Lord. It is when we go and we worship other gods and we begin to follow their practices instead of the one true God. And those practices, if, we go, if you go back and look in the Old Testament, those practices in, included um, all sorts of um, terrible sexual practices. It included uh, worshiping other gods. It included a, a, a very different moral and ethical standard. And this is what drew me in. This is what really hit home for me. If you go back and read the Old Testament, God's people had even been drawn into child sacrifice. This was not about ethnicity. This was about God's people 
being lured into a life of spiritual adultery against God. They were being lured into a life where they were actually hurting themselves and hurting people around them. And that's why in verse 2, these marriages are described as faithlessness. By choosing to intermarry with these other people who practice these abominations, they had committed infidelity to the Lord. Now, here's an important question we have to deal with. Why did they just now all of a sudden see that this was a problem? What was it about coming out of Babylon and into Jerusalem that now gave them this new awareness that, uh uh-oh, we have committed infidelity. We have committed spiritual adultery against God. What was it about their new location that helped them see? Well, I think that this mirrors in a lot of ways the same thing that happens in the life of a true Christian. See, it's actually after you become a Christian that you see how utterly sinful you actually are. It's actually after you are drawn out of the world that you see how fully consumed with the world you really really are. The things that you used to not have that much of a problem with, you now realize is an affront, is an infidelity, is a turning away from your God. That we are a lot like Ezra and these Israelites. When they were in Babylon, it it wasn't a big deal because everyone else around them was doing the exact same thing. But when God brought them out of Babylon and into Jerusalem, now they saw with new eyes their sin. And that's the same thing that happens to you when you become a Christian. In fact, it might be the case that the longer you're a Christian, the closer you get to God, the more and more and more you see your sinfulness. Uh, In 2019, when Allie and I were uh, moving back here after three years, uh, we went house shopping and uh, we we looked at a lot of different homes and we had seen this one online that we just really loved. It it just, the pictures just looked great. Uh, It was in the neighborhood that we wanted to be in. In fact, it's in the neighborhood that we ended up moving in uh, into. Uh, the front yard was already like nice and manicured. The backyard had this just nice kind of perfect view. It was just, it was just seemed like the house for us. And then we actually went into the home. Uh, we have now affectionately called that house the cat pee house. It's like when you walked in the door, the smell just smacked you in the face. And you, you kind of walk out and you, you think, is this just me? And you think, no, no. But then it, it dawned on us. Someone had been living in that. And after years and years of living in that, that had become normal to them. See, it is not until God brings us out of the world that we actually begin to realize that the things that we thought were normal were actually utterly dysfunction. The things that we looked around and saw, oh, look, yeah, everybody's doing this. This is how everybody lives. And now we realize that is infidelity to God. When God brings us out of it, we actually begin to see more and more and more just how sinful we really are. So what it means to be restored to brokenness is to become aware of the things that we were blind to before. It is to be given a new spiritual sight. Yes, to see the beauty of God. Yes, to see the grace of Jesus, but also to see the sinfulness of our sin. And one of the things I love about this passage is that we see that this spiritual awareness was a community project. Uh, It it was a group of people who came to Ezra and said, hey, we are seeing this. And that's what starts the whole conversation. And it reminds me that you and I are no different. Just because God has given us a new spiritual sight, we still need people in our lives who will help us see our blind spots. We still need people like Gary was to Bob, who will actually look him in the face and love him enough to say, you know what, Bob, actually, I don't think you're hopeless enough. I don't think you're broken enough. We 
must value this personal spiritual awareness. And if we're going to value it, it means we have to value community. And not just the cordial kind where we wave at one another every week and come in and come out and leave. But the kind of community where we actually love people and we're actually close enough in one another's lives that we could lovingly say, hey, you might be living in a cat, a cat pee house. Guys, I don't, I don't want that. I want people in my life who would love me enough to say, hey, this is, this is dysfunction. This is not normal. So the path to godly brokenness begins with an awareness of infidelity, but then it moves secondly to a response of grief. Look at how Ezra responds in verses 3 and 5. He says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Now, I admit this depth of grief is foreign to me. Ezra's heart is so tender towards God. Ezra's heart is so ablaze for the glory of God. That when the sin gets revealed, he responds as if someone has died. And that is exactly how we ought to respond. So I just want to think for a minute, how could Ezra have responded in this moment? Uh, These guys come to him and they report the problem. They reveal an awareness of the sin How could Ezra have responded in this moment? Well, he could have said, Oh, boys, 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 don't you know the world has changed? We've got to adjust with the times. Hmm. Or he could have said, Grab your swords and let's go kill them. Or he could have said, Ooh, this is bad timing. Do we really have to deal with this right now? We've got so much other stuff to do. Or he could have said, Whew, thank goodness we made the morning sacrifice. Thank you for your grace, God. These reflect responses to sin that you and I are constantly tempted to make that are desperately off. One we might call the progressive response to sin, where we're constantly shifting the target to make sure that whatever is good at the current moment is what what we feel like is good. That if the world seems to have changed, then we think that God's standard must change with it. Another response would be the self-righteous response to sin. Where as soon as we see it, we think, I've got to take charge here. This is my responsibility to deal with this. Another would be the minimizing response to sin. Or we act like sin is just a small thing, no big deal, just sweep it under the rug. And move on. Or what we might call the cheap grace response to sin. Where, we, oh, thanks for your grace, God. Sweep it under the rug. Moving on. No sorrow. No repentance. What it means to be restored to brokenness is that we no longer excuse our sin and we certainly aren't proud of our sin. We stop making light of our sin. We take this phrase out of our mouth. Well, everybody's human. 
See, there's no joy in grace if there's no grief in sin. There's no excitement and relief in the good news of Jesus Christ if we've never actually felt the sorrow of what our sin deserves. Notice also how Ezra's response of grief is somehow connected to the evening sacrifice. Twice in this little section, it alerts us to the location and the timing of Ezra's grief. See, it was in the context of God's sacrificial provision for sin, and get, get this, that Ezra was able to see visibly what his sin deserved. Every day, a visible witness of slaughter. What that means is that if you and I do not respond to sin with the grief that it deserves, what we actually need to do is we actually need to go and look at the cross. Yes, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the love and the grace of God. But what we also see at the cross is the devastation of our sin. We see the sorrow that we have caused. We see in the cross the justice that had to be dealt with for us to be brought back into relationship with God. And that leads us to our next stop along the path. Third, we move to an admission of guilt. An admission of guilt. Uh, the rest of this chapter is a prayer, and it begins in verses 6 and 7. Ezra prays, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today." Now, in my opinion, these two phrases back-to-back -back that Ezra shares, they could not get any stronger. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. See, at this point, the one particular sin actually draws Ezra's heart and mind to the bigger picture of his total guilt before God. Now, we have to ask, is he exaggerating? Is he using hyperbole? Is he talking in language that's just flowery to try to express what he's going through? I don't think he is. In the New Testament, in James chapter 2, verse 10, this is what James tells us. James says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. How is that possible? Keep the whole law failed in one point, guilty of all of it. How is that possible? Well, over and over and over, what the Bible is teaching us is that the measure of what we deserve for our sin is not so much related to the measure of the offense, but it's related to the measure of who we have offended. It's not so much what we have done as it is whom we have done it to. And we have this same thing in our own justice system. You can actually do the exact same thing. You can commit the exact same crime, but depending on who you commit that crime against, you will incur upon yourself a different punishment, a different judgment. Did you know that? If one of you uh, doesn't like this sermon today, and you come up after the service and you assault me, you could probably get into some trouble for that. But if you leave the service today and you go and assault a police officer, you will get in a lot more trouble than if you assault me. Why is that? Well, in our justice system, we have something that's called a crime against justice. 
And it means that you can commit the same exact action. But depending on who you committed that action against, you will receive a harsher judgment. Now, multiply that by God. We're not talking about sinning against a fellow sinner. We're not talking about sinning against someone who holds some important public official office. We are talking about sinning against the God of the universe, who, by the way, has only ever been good to us. And that's why the Bible teaches us that it's not so much that what we deserve, the guilt that we've incurred, is not so much about what each of us individually have done. It's about the fact that every single one of us have offended God. And because of whom we have offended, we incur, like Ezra says here, guilt that can be stacked up to the heavens. So what it means to be restored to brokenness is to embrace the fact that we haven't just done a few bad things, but that we're actually guilty. Guys, the heart of Christianity is the fact of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners. But Jesus Christ dying on the cross for sinners will not make sense to us if we have not admitted our guilt. Jesus Christ taking the penalty for our guilt will mean nothing to me until I have witnessed and felt the burden that, of the guilt that my sin has brought upon me. Yes, it is true. Romans 8.1 tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that is only an announcement of good news to people who know that apart from Jesus, all they deserve is condemnation. And this leads to our next stop along the journey. The fourth step is a remembrance of grace. A remembrance of grace. Verses 8 and 9 say, But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. See, there's this line of thinking that says that if you emphasize grace too much, then it will actually make people complacent. That if you emphasize grace too much, people then won't want to pursue personal holiness. But what we see here in Ezra is that it's actually the exact opposite. That to encounter true grace, real grace, undiluted grace where we actually see how good God has been to us in our sin, that that is actually what breaks our hearts. Ezra is recounting all the good things that God has done in His grace and in His mercy. But see, in the context of this prayer of brokenness, this grace and this mercy was not an excuse to avoid the humbling of sin. The grace is actually what broke Ezra's heart the most because he realized that God had only been good. He had only loved. He had only poured out His grace. And yet they had continued to turn and turn and turn away from Him. That it's actually the goodness of God that makes our sin hurt the worst. That we might actually feel a little bit better about it if God had sinned against us first. But in view of what He's done for us, our sin just casts us in the dirt. In the play turned movie, Les Miserables, Jean Valjean was this criminal who'd been thrown into prison for 20 years for stealing a piece of bread. And after 20 years, he gets let out on parole. And he finds himself 
into the home of a bishop and he steals silver from the bishop. Well, the next day he's caught by the officials and so they bring him to the official's house, but in a twist, in an act of mercy, the bishop tells the officials that he had given the silver to Jean Valjean. And then, in an over an abundance of grace, not only does he tell them that he had given it to them, he goes and he finds more silver. And he said, here, Jean Valjean, you forgot the other things that I had given you. And so not only does he not have him convicted and thrown back in prison for stealing from him, he gives him even more than what he had initially stolen. See, it is the mercy and the grace of this bishop which finally cracked the hard-hearted Jean Valjean. That when he experienced mercy and grace from the bishop, it changed his heart. Grace is what breaks hard hearts. Grace is what softens sinners. Grace is what melts the ice, both towards God and towards others. So what it means to be restored to brokenness is to experience grace in such a way that we are melted. It is to be devastated by how God would be so loving and so merciful to people like us who have turned away from Him again and again and again and again. After considering God's grace, Ezra is ready to deal with the specifics. And so this leads to our next step in the journey. Fifth, a confession of sin. A confession of sin. Verse 10 and 12 get specific. He says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. See, we must admit admit with Ezra that, yes, our guilt has risen up as high as the heavens, but that's not an excuse to not deal with the specific sins that we have committed before God. It's not as if... The, I'm sorry, it's just an easy excuse to move on from dealing with what we've done. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in an argument with somebody, and you could just tell, like, the, the, the conflict has just come to a gridlock. You're just not getting anywhere. And so one of you just says, well, well, fine, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And the other person's figuring out what's going on, wisely asks, and, and what are you sorry for? See, maybe we want to show forgiveness to somebody. Maybe we want to mend the relationship, but we want to know that when we extend forgiveness, that the other person actually knows what it is that we have forgiven them for. We don't want, I'm sorry, to just be an excuse to move on with our day. We don't want, I'm sorry, to just be an excuse to get peace back in the house. And our relationship with God is no different. It's not as if I just wake up in the morning every day, the same old, God, I sinned against you yesterday. Thank you for your forgiveness. Now I'm going to move on with my life. Right? No. Ezra confesses his sin specifically. What it means to be restored to brokenness is actually to become more sensitive to the ways that we, specific ways that we turn away from God. It's to become more tenderhearted. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in relationships, but the more delicate, the more loving, the more cherished that relationship, the worse you feel over even the slightest sins against that person. As we get closer to God, we actually start to see with more clarity even the little ways that we turn away from Him. Maybe you're like me and it 
you find yourself at times having a hard time confessing sin specifically. Like you know there's just this, this sense of guilt that just hangs over your head, but it can be hard sometimes to actually point and say, okay, now like this, this is what I need to ask for forgiveness. This is what I need to turn to the Lord again and confess in his presence. Maybe that's you. Well, I think Ezra gives us a good model here. He takes a specific command, and then he says, Lord, we have forsaken this command. He points specifically to this. And so maybe you and I would read a passage like this, and we might ask ourselves, how have we not separated ourselves from the world like God has called us to? Maybe in our speech, maybe in the dreams that we've created for our life, maybe in our romantic relationships, we know that we haven't separated from the world the way God has called us to. And so we see this and we pour out our heart and we confess it to God. And so the Bible helps us, gives us the specifics that we need to confess specifically. This is why when you confess specifically, then you can be forgiven specifically. And when you're forgiven specifically, then you can give thanks specifically. Maybe you're like me and you struggle with that. Here's a few passages that you might want to start in. If you're looking for ways to examine your heart, one would be Deuteronomy chapter 5. Uh, it's one of the places where we have the Ten Commandments revealed for us. Just read through it and ask the Lord to reveal to you where have you turned from Him. Uh, another great passage would be Psalm 15. The question gets asked, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? And then it just lists this laundry list of character traits, qualities, heart postures. And just read through that list and just open yourself up to the Lord and say, Lord, reveal to me where I've turned from you. Uh, another great one would be Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, Paul lays out for us how we are supposed to care for one another in the church. And I promise you, if you read it, you will be convicted. Go read it. Open yourself up to the Lord. Say, Lord, show me. And then a place, I spent about an hour this week doing this with the Lord. It's 1 Corinthians 13. where Paul defines love in specific details. And knowing that the first and second commandment are all about love, you'll be able to see with specifics ways you've turned from the Lord. And so that brings us to our final stop. The end of the journey is finally a posture of humility. A posture of humility. Ezra finishes his prayer in verses 13 to 15 saying, And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. There's two two things that Ezra says that demonstrate his humility in this passage. At least two things. The first is this. He says, you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve. Do you see how that would change your heart and my heart every day if we walked with that awareness? If every single day, in every situation we found ourselves in, we actually believed this is better than I deserve. Not only would that change our relationship to God, but it surely would change our relationship to others. It is hard to judge other people when you've admitted, God has given me better than I deserve. It is hard to walk in unforgiveness when you've admitted, the Lord has forgiven me a debt I could never repay. And then we see his humility at the end of verse 15, where he prays, We are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you. See, what Ezra means is that 
he literally was on his knees. He had literally ripped his clothes and was down on the ground because in his sin, in his guilt, standing was not the posture that was appropriate. And he teaches us that the posture of the Christian is one of lowliness, down, low, before the Lord. I was thinking about this week how uh, difficult this passage is for me. You know, just my whole life is just staying up, going up, moving up is just how I live. And it, I see it mainly in my relationship with others, in the defensiveness, in the argumentation, in the desire to prove that I'm right. I see that that posture of humility just hasn't been formed fully in me. And uh, the picture that I kept getting in my mind this week, um, this might sound funny, but we'll get there. The picture that I had in my mind was of a donkey booth. Um, if anybody in here has ever been in a donkey booth, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. For whatever reason, when you're sitting out there on that little ledge, that little thing, that little seat that you know is going to drop, and somebody hits that button, it is just gut reaction to reach out and try to grab and, and keep yourself up. And after the first eight or ten times, I mean, you about rip your arm out of your socket. It's, it is like painful. And you almost have to talk, you have to psych yourself up. You have to like grab your arms like this and get on that thing and be ready to drop. Because your, your body is just so not used to falling that when you plunge, your gut reaction is to reach up and try to, try to catch yourself. And the, what, the, what the Lord revealed to me this week is that I've lived so much of my life that way. That as God has been working on this project to humble me, to get me low, and that hey, He uses other people in my life who press my buttons but when they press my buttons and God puts me in that situation of humility, I want to stay up. And so I reach out and I try to grab and I try to, I try to defend, argue, prove. And then I hear this. You have been crucified with Christ. You have died with Christ. See, it's really tough if you're already sitting at the bottom of the pool and somebody hits the button, there's no fall. Just click, click, click. But you're already down. And when we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, broken, humbled, low before the Lord, it changes our posture makes us less touchy, less defensive, less pushy, because we've already admitted, whatever I have is better than what I deserve. And guys, I need to go on that journey. I want to conclude this morning with a story from Jesus. Um, Jesus gives us his perspective on brokenness. In Luke chapter 18, he tells this story. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're here today and the weight of your guilt has pressed you down low, if you're here today and you don't even think you could look God in the face, that the shame of what you've done would keep you from even looking to heaven. Jesus is moving towards you with grace. Jesus loves your heart. He is attracted to your brokenness. And if you cry out to him for mercy, he will pour it out. So, are we hopeless enough? Are we helpless enough? Are we broken enough for Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, it would be so unnatural to us to move down. It would be so unnatural for us to seek the low place. Lord, everything in us wants us to float up, wants us to push up, wants us to grab up. But then we look at our Savior. We see Jesus who had all the ability save himself from dying on the cross and yet he willingly was plunged down into death for us Lord would that melt us today would that reshape us before you to walk in lowliness to be more and more comfortable in the humble position in the low position down at the foot of the cross. Lord, meet us in our guilt with your mercy. Meet us in our grief this morning with your love. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.